0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we will do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO founder of a Silicon Valley based research firm called Constellation Research. He's a best selling author of the book Disrupting Digital Business. He's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co host, Bala Ashar. More importantly, one of the top followers on Twitter for CEOs, CIOs, and CMOs. Author himself on Business TV. And more importantly, a good speaker and friend. So, who do we have today? It's Friday, right? We've got some top CEOs that we got to talk to.
0: Yeah, you know, some of the best and brightest, most successful CEOs join us on Disrupt and today is no exception. We have Seth Raven, CEO of Remedy Street. Uh, Seth is a 30 year enterprise software industry veteran who pioneered the independent enterprise software support industry. In 2005, the enterprise software observer named Seth one of the top 25 next generation leaders of enterprise software industry in the same year of this recognition, Seth launched Remedy Street with a mission to redefine enterprise software support using innovation, next generation support services, and delivering to more than 50% savings in fees compared to software vendors' annual support programs. Today, Rimmen Street currently provides support for some of the biggest, most successful companies in the world, including Oracle, SAP, IBM, Microsoft. I think you've heard of these companies. <laughs> Prior to the successful launch of this independent maintenance and support program services, He was an executive of the PeopleStar, serving most recently as Vice President of Customer Sales. To learn more about Rimini Street, you can follow the company on Twitter at R-I-M-I-N-I Street, S-T-R-E-E-T. Welcome, Seth, to Disrupt TV.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday happy friday happy friday all right well hey thanks for being out here and uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is really the shift that's what's happening in what we call a post pandemic world and one of the big things is this new cio mandate i've been hearing you talk about this yeah it's something that's changing Uh, it's something that changes with all the different types of business scenarios that keep happening but what is the cio mandate let's start there and, and get your take
2: sure I think the CIO mandate has moved away from the traditional 30 years ago, the data center, uh, what products are you running and what releases. And today the CIO's mandate is to help the company create a competitive advantage and with growth. And I think that redefines the role pretty dramatically to looking at solutions um, and moves the CIO really up to the top of the table with uh, the uh, the ceo the cfo uh even in the chief procurement so you're talking about being part of the table where the cio is often in the
1: past sat be behind the table and i think that's a big change Ah, uh, so getting them more of a business oriented seat at the table being them much more strategic in terms of how they work uh that, that's kind of where you're saying what's so kind of the strategy that you're talking about and that shift that's happening especially given what's happened recently
2: Yes, of course. And I think, you know, with this pandemic and our reality, we're all navigating right now. uh, Growth has never been more important. Um, Survival, understanding what systems, processes that can be changed from a CIO's perspective can help the business today. It may even be as much as survival, uh, let alone just immediate growth. And I think you're watching those CIOs who step to the table who are going to look at, for example, they're going to shift the cloud faster in a lift and shift. Mm-hmm. Going to, they're going to move themselves out of a data center where they would spend millions of dollars with a with a hardware refresh uh, that's not necessary today. So I think there's a lot of things that the the CIO of today is going to to accelerate focus on that is different than what a CIO would look at in the past.
1: Makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's 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 incredible. Uh, you know, what we're experiencing, certainly, you know, it's it's some, you know, something I've never experienced in my lifetime. None of us have. None of us have, none of us have. You know, and the shift from this centralized to decentralized digital only model, uh, where, you know, you're serving your stakeholders on digital, pre- predominantly on digital channels only, especially, you know, That's in right. terms of the function and responsibilities of IT, and, and you have to do it uh, literally overnight, uh, you know, moving your call center to a cloud is not an easy task. If you're a digital immigrant company that wasn't born in the cloud, wasn't born mobile, social, with you know advanced analytics and AI underpinnings, so the role of a CIO today is incredibly challenging. <laughs> and speed and relevance are the two most important currencies. Can you talk about you know what are the biggest challenges for CIOs? And how can they stay relevant knowing that, you know, we may be in this state for perhaps weeks or months, depending on where you are in the world. And even when we return, we're not returning to norm, we're returning to a new norm. Uh, uh, What what are are some of the challenges CIOs face?
2: Well, I I think, first of all, there were those of us who were lucky to be a digital platform to begin with, companies that are going to survive and thrive through this have a digital core. Uh, For example, we had to close all our offices in 20 countries. Everyone moved to home, but we were already 50 percent home base. And we had infrastructure we put in place over the last few years to be able to handle the volume of 100 percent work outside our offices that we were completely digital. We weren't reliant on paper moving around. And so for us, it was a smooth transition to a hundred percent office. Mm-hmm. But we, you have to have those infrastructure capabilities. I think you're seeing a lot of companies that didn't get there yet are having challenges yeah. uh, in terms of, of being able to achieve that in a short period of time. I mean, let's face it, guys, this happened in about eight weeks, right? Nice. We went eight weeks ago, We were thinking that there was a you know this issue in china and it was spreading around a little bit maybe we'll have a little bit of outbreak here and there no one expected we'd be shutting down every business in the world right i think you know this has been a shock factor for eight weeks and we're watching which companies were really ready and able to adapt and which ones weren't those that were digitally platformed have made the adjustment very quickly those who weren't are are in a lot of trouble and they're moving very quickly to try and, and fill that gap. But it's very difficult to do in the short term.
0: Seth, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you are a CEO of a company. So ultimately, you know, the decisions come down to, to your uh, understanding and approval. Given the, given the sense that, you know, there's discussion, scientific communities talking, maybe potential a second or third wave of the pandemic, you know, until there's a vaccine available, or herd immunity, or you know, uh, mm-hmm. ability to trace back and have preventative measures in place, are you considering, um, you know, perhaps not going back to a 50/50 model, but mm-hmm. if you can efficiently delight your stakeholders remotely, perhaps entertaining the idea that the new norm means if you can deliver service remotely from your home, then that may be the new model.
2: Well, I think you're going to see some really interesting changes in real estate. I mean, coming out of this, I think you're going to see remote home models uh, are going to get another look. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, people were moving back from the home models. A lot of companies were saying, let's move back to office space because we missed the we missed the dynamic of everyone yeah. together, right? There's no doubt you lose some of the creative, some of the, the ability to work as a team when you're on the ground. For sure. Uh, Second of all, I think real estate is going to come under tremendous pressure. Uh, all of us are looking, saying, okay, if we can really do the business do we, remotely, do we really need all that office space? Uh, you know, People like WeWork might suffer in the future or, or remote because they don't need as much space. Maybe we have more people, even if it's 75% from home versus 50%. Right. So I do think there will be some shifts. There will be some understanding that maybe we rethink office space as a place that we get together for meetings. Um, We hotel there and we have uh, rooms where you can make phone calls, but we turn it more into a meeting location than a place where we have a bunch of permanent office people. And I think that's all going to come out of this because we're all forced into a new model. And even on the marketing side, we had to go 100% digital. We've been a marketing company that did a lot of events, Uh, This is going to change, I think, dramatically the number of events, which are very expensive from a marketing perspective, but we forced to 100% digital. We're running ads on television now. Um, We are in the process of uh, we've sent out letters, things that we haven't done in a while. Um, We're using real letter mail, uh, which because we haven't done it in a while. Our teams really didn't know how to get a massive letter out to customers. Right, right. So we're, we're, learning, you know, we're relearning a lot of uh, block and tackle things yeah. that we have to do in the basics you know, because we moved to a digital platform. Now we're integrating that digital platform with some traditional marketing techniques. But that event market, I don't think it's going to come back uh, anywhere near what we used to
1: see. Sure. Wow. you got to get up that GBC with the binder machine and uh, get that thing cranking. Yeah. While you're at. Well, you know, people people weren't used to it. We want to send out thousands of
2: letters. And it, it turned out we didn't even have letterhead because we use digital letterhead now <laughs> for everything that went out. We had to go print letterhead. So, I mean, there were some really interesting things that we learned along the way of going back to basics that have been very effective. And, and we've seen them be effective. But are you going to, are you, are
1: you going to put secret messages in the watermark as well. <laughs> messages in the watermark on the back of the yeah, paper. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, we had to go out, out and find the, the watermark messages. paper, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. No, so, no, so no. We, we've been we've been really learning about some of these things just because everyone's forced into it. So, I do think there will be. You know, it's a horrible global situation. Yes, I do believe we have tough days still ahead. But I do also believe there will be silver linings that we're going to rethink some of these ideas. And I think from the CIO perspective, when you have to create competitive advantage and growth with your organization in a completely different environment, the the CIOs that are flexible, the CIOs that are watching this, that are able to be malleable, I think are going to do a lot better.
1: You know, this is a great conversation, right? Because the innovation and the impact on innovation and priorities is definitely changing. Let's talk a little bit about that and uh, where you're seeing that shift.
2: Well, I, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that every company in the world has a financial problem now. And that financial problem is either their revenue has been disrupted on the front end, right? Or their cash supplies are going to be tight, which means that they are going to slow pay or they are going to wind up trying to negotiate with every vendor they have. This is what's going to happen in this world, because when you have revenue disruption, everything changes, right? And then we've seen this in prior, in 2000 with the dot-com meltdown. We saw this in 2008, but those were not the shock that we have today in a very short period of time. And we didn't have every business in every segment impacted, And now you have every government spending more money than they ever can even think about how to repay. So we've got a real significant economic flash across everything. Now, that creates tremendous opportunity, obviously, for people like us who are in the business of providing discounted services that provide more value. Those are going to be very, very hot commodities, I think, months ahead as we move through this. Um, those people who are on the, the, the need-to-have versus the, the, the like-to-have or the nice-to-have, this is not going to be a world of nice-to-haves. This is going to be a focus on must-haves, which means, again, I think you're going to see tremendous project cancellations in IT. You talked about innovation. Mm-hmm. I think that you know things like ERP refreshes that don't bring real value in terms of competitive advantage or growth, those projects, I think, are going to be a, uh, going to be pushed off a year, uh, maybe even two years, while companies rebuild cash supplies. I think all companies are going to be competing for a smaller pool of money that's going to be available, and prioritization is going to be a top uh, is going to be top of mind.
0: You no, know, absolutely. You know, the average buying decision team in B two B could be eight, nine strong, and. <laughs> There are different personas that make up the buying decision team and right now the cfo is perhaps the most influential uh, individual in terms of uh, approving an investment thesis and putting hard dollars towards technological uh, investments so give advice to companies i was a chief customer officer responsible for global services for 10 years with seven contact centers and hundreds of service professionals around the world And, uh, you know, total lifetime value of a customer, customer churn, net promoter score, CSAT, and all of the traditional call center KPIs in terms of a balanced performance scorecard was of incredible importance to my company and and my organization. How does Rimini Street, tell us how you realize the savings and what's the competitive advantage of partnering with your company, who's been a successful company for 15 plus years now, in terms of, not only reducing costs, but also delighting stakeholders, because you have to have that balance. It's not, you can't achieve greatness just by cost cutting. You have to have that high performance as well as cost optimization to have that secret formula.
2: Sure, well, I think the first thing that every company has to do is you have to survive. Yeah. I think in order to survive right now, you must be focused on cash. Mm -hmm. Cash is lifeblood Uh, in this environment you know, making sure that you provide the kind of service that your customers view as mission critical to their operation means that you will get paid. Uh, It means that you have a service that is required at this time. And you have to be thinking in those ways. You know, when you looked at 2000, you looked at 2008, what happened to companies were they they didn't watch cash. And if you need to raise cash in an environment like this, you will pay a terrible price. So, managing cash is the absolute number one thing. So every CIO has to look at their spending pool, immediately make changes. And you'll hear this from the, from the private equity world all the time. They're sure. worried that the fact it takes longer to cut costs than it does to watch revenue fall. And in an environment like this, your revenue can stop immediately and you can't spend months to get your costs in alignment because you will bleed to death in your cash pool. And so it's very important to immediately align revenue on the front end and costs on the back end. That is critical. Because if you want to be there for your customers, you must have an operation that can survive through a time like this. So that's number one. So every CIO needs to immediately look at every spend item they have in their portfolio They need to understand the revenue of the company, what's coming in the door, how is that shifted, What's that risk change, and then immediately look at the projects that they have, which ones will create competitive advantage to help drive the company forward in a a world that's got tighter spend and more competition that will be out there, which ones are ones that you can push off a year. Where is that spend that you can just push off? Because it's something you wanted to do, but it is not critical to the business. And that's where everybody should be right
1: now. Hey, now you guys went through a successful uh, public offering. Uh, You guys came in through a SPAC and uh, you guys are now listed. Um, Mm -hmm. What's changed? I want to talk about the startup community a little bit. Um and Las Vegas's Starbucks community—it's been very interesting over there as well. Um, what's changed? If you were to go public again today, what would what would you do differently? Uh, now knowing what you well, know, there's no hair
2: left, Ray. I can't go
1: public.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, join things. the club. Join the club. I, I always wanted. I always wanted to go through an IPO process, and and I'm glad I did it. I, I it's not something that you ever want to do twice. It's a once in a lifetime uh, event. Um, but you know, look, Las Vegas has some great opportunities. We started in Las Vegas. We're still headquartered there. Um, there's been a nice, you know, we have Zappos who, who was started there. We have switch. So we have some very nice tech companies that, that have all started in Las Vegas and call it home. Uh, we all still call it home. Um, Vegas has had some very challenging points that yeah. we get the startups going. They've often moved to the Bay area because they They have a need for workers that they can't find in Vegas in volume. And that's been one of the challenges of startups remaining in the Las Vegas market. Now, we have engineers in 20 countries. So for us, it didn't matter that we're in Las Vegas. We didn't need to be headquartered in Silicon Valley. We weren't looking for for all the engineers in one place. But that's part of the reason it's been tough to keep startups in the Vegas market.
1: Wow. But even with the favorable real estate costs and cost of living, that still isn't a draw and UNLV is being there as well. Sure.
2: Well, I think it's a draw for the, for the startup, for the initial startup, but once it starts taking off, yeah. it's yeah. to find the workers in Vegas. Now we've had more people moving in because we do have a good cost of living. We do have good tax climate. We have an excellent business uh, climate, but again, if you're looking for, for a, a sort of a, a quantity of workers, it usually winds up getting moved to Boston or, or winds up in New York, it's, you know, in Silicon Valley, or you wind up in, in the Bay Area. And that's been the challenge, keeping them in Vegas once they're incubated, once they begin to grow and and, and getting enough workers uh, that can
1: meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is great. We are here with Seth Ravin, CEO at Ramini Street. Uh, and you can follow them on Twitter at Ramini Street um, and Twitter. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. It's so good to have you here
2: thanks much guys and take Thank care so and be much. safe and, and enjoy, you, enjoy your work at home environments for, for <laughs> to be with us for, for a you can't, longer I can't do
1: this five weeks not in
2: a I know. It's like unbelievable I'm and so I don't crazy. think we I don't think we've rounded the track yet I don't think no. no. yeah we've got we've got weeks to go. Thank you, Seth. You're terrific. Thanks, Thanks Thanks, guys. Take.
0: You can tell the angst with Ray, who travels about six hundred thousand miles a year. For him to be grounded at home for a few weeks is is super difficult. Uh, It's uh, our privilege to now have another incredible CEO joining Disrupt TV, Karen Seuss, chief executive officer at Blockchain Intel. With over 20 years of experience in technology companies, Karen is co-inventor of five patents and has worked in a variety of engineering, marketing, and sales roles to bring new products to markets. Ray, five patents, you and I need to step up our game. Uh, Karen started Blockchain Intel to enable organizations to find and analyze fraud and opportunities with blockchains. Blockchain SaaS product deploys human-in-the-loop machine learning on blockchains to help organizations combat fraud, as well as understand better areas of investment in public and permission blockchains. In her career, Karen has also worked closely to shape standards organizations such as SWIFT, Nacho Core. Karen also co-founded Blockchain by Women to encourage women to join and start companies that use or develop blockchain technologies. we are gonna love to hear more about that. You can follow Karen on Twitter at K-A-R-E-N-H S-U-M-A-R. Welcome, Karen, to Disrupt TV.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Hey, thanks a lot Thank for being you for here. Being You're here. one of the blockchain stars, and uh, people do look to you for a lot of information and insight. Uh, question for you, how did you get started in the blockchain space? I mean, this was just, what, four years ago, five years ago?
3: Yeah, exactly. So um, it was actually because of some of the standards work that I did with the financial organizations you mentioned, SWIFT, National is because the last 20 years, I spent my life dealing with data, all aspects of data, moving data, cleaning up data, analyzing data. <laughs> and um, and yes, if you can imagine, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. And um, I spent a lot of time with banks and other financial institutions doing this kind of data cleanup and data analytics. And during that time, I understood well how SWIFT and other centralized organizations worked Um, and how payments, how they transferred information about payments or securities. And when I understood how the blockchain offered this shared ledger, it blew my mind because I just thought of all the reconciliation, all the data movement, all the data cleanup that I had been helping companies do is now something that isn't needed quite as much. Uh, Plus, there's a lot of disintermediation because there's a lot of people or process steps taken out. Because of being able to, you know, directly transact on this decentralized network, uh, so that's that's really how I got started. Blew my mind, and then personally, I started mining, and I was like, "Holy, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> This this actually works. It's not just you know theoretical mumbo jumbo. It it does work." And I I have a miner right now in my office that. You know, among other things, generates heat for me in the winter because I'm cold. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it actually does make money too, so it's it works.
1: That's awesome. That's That's this is amazing. This
3: beats enterprise software hands down. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, are <laughs> no kidding. Enterprise software, you're like I'm going mining. Forget this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you can. Oh, oh and goodness. I would not recommend this um, for everyone. Right, this is a hobby. I will first and foremost say, uh, but. I needed to prove to myself that it actually worked. And so I was amazed, you know, and, and happy that it did.
0: That's amazing. Well, it doesn't surprise us that for 20 years, your life has been around data and making informed decisions and helping other stakeholders do the same that you would want to roll up your sleeves and get involved. Now thinking about just the last eight weeks, and this shift from centralized to decentralized digital only and all the horrific stories about just processing payments to small businesses and individuals and how the federal, state, local governments are struggling to be able to, you know, in a a speedy mechanism fashion, uh, help individuals. This pandemic must have accelerated the awareness and appreciation and understanding of the importance and vital role of distributed ledgers for our future, uh, my sense is that it's it's you know 2020 maybe a, a definitive year in terms of adoption and interest in blockchain. Is, am I, is that is that an appropriate way of thinking about it? And why do you still believe that blockchain can be such a disruptive emerging technology for 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 society and businesses as a whole?
3: Yes, so I agree. So I mean, I think first of all. Um, the blockchain startups and companies that I've been working with are all extremely busy right now. And it's interesting because we're all like, well, what's going on? Because, you know, everyone's kind of um, in this sort of, oh, my gosh, what happened and how do I recover? Um, but exactly. I for what you, you know, the reasons you just mentioned, right, we have moved even more online than ever before. We have seen the results of government stimulus trying to help, but getting bogged down. And so the two areas that I still see the blockchain technology working is in number one, being able to provide that transaction speed and disintermediation. Uh, And number two, the provenance and sort of that um, immutable data Hmm. record and lineage. uh, Is is,
1: is there any use cases in tokenization that's picking up as well, or is that holding off? Yeah.
3: Yeah, So uh, you might laugh, but uh, in this, world that we live in i was actually just um texting back and forth with a russian oligarch i'm not saying i'm doing business with the russian oligarch (laughs) oligarch, okay that is um heavy into metals and uh, this is well known it's in the news um and he has palladium a lot of palladium and is creating um, a token a stable coin backed by Mm -hmm. palladium and an associated exchange so we see so that's you know one sort of um high profile example but there are a lot of cases like this Mm -hmm. where companies are looking to tokenize and it's uh also for right now because investment is hard to come by right um that the investment community the traditional investment community um maybe you know stepping back a bit um in terms of venture capital and then you also have um, like you guys mentioned earlier, you know, the issues with getting funding from the government, you know, everything's down. So uh, people are looking for more innovative, creative ways, you know, to keep going. And um, we just had a, a webcast or a panel a couple of nights ago where we were talking to um, Dash Core Group. And so Dash is one of the coins like Celo and um, another, a number of coins that have their own foundations. And um, these coins, because they're generating value, right? They're able to set aside a portion, like 10% um, of these funds for investment. And so, what they do is then enable people to effectively write business plans and submit these business plans for investment. And this is something that these foundations are continuing to do in spite of what's going on. And I see that, you know, this is going to be a continuing trend, right? Well, well, blockchain
1: is a gift that keeps giving, and and you know, uh, hopefully, the Swiss regulatory framework works for um, your Russian oligarch friend because they, because that does happen, right? I mean, uh, I mean that that guy's worth 18 billion, right? I mean, it's not it's, we're not talking about small change here. Uh, that that guy has the opportunity to actually create a brand new regulatory framework for the trading of not just not just the palladium-backed one. I mean, there are other things that you can trade right. against once using the same framework, which makes it very interesting to take tokenization into models. So, yeah. That's, that's,
3: yeah, so. it's, yeah, it could be anything from commodities, to fiat currencies, you know, to other companies, right? Um, and using the, the companies as assets themselves in some way. Sure.
0: Karen, tell us about why you uh, started Blockchain Intel, and you know, give us some insight in terms of how you engage with you know, company executives to, uh, you know, to provide the service that you provide.
3: Yeah. So um, I was at another blockchain company where we were helping a number of different types of companies deploy blockchain mm-hmm. projects. And those included not only payments type projects, but also healthcare and energy, which I think are very interesting use cases um, that we can talk about later. But in terms of the payments um, use cases, there was one company in particular called PESA that we were working with and slapped with this massive lawsuit. And this lawsuit was for money laundering that was linked to child pornography. And the last thing I wanted to be a part of was (laughs) something like that, because I mean, like many of us, we believe in the future of the blockchain. And this is just not representative of the majority of of the people in this um, industry. And so I knew we were not alone as a company with this need to understand who it is that we're dealing with, right? And um, yeah, you know, blockchains, cryptocurrencies are not the wild wild west. It's not overrun with criminals. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But showing that um, and getting people to to trust was a big issue and a big mm-hmm. hurdle. And so given my data background, and my love of data, I thought, okay, what better way than to use data to explain to people that they can trust these counterparties, these people that they're working with, um, through a risk score. And that risk score is backed by information about, is this party um, registered with FinCEN or with some other FINRA, You know, if, if they're a broker? Um, if they're an MSB, are they registered with FinCEN? Um, Are they a well-known exchange without any hacks and they have KYC and AML in place? Um, Are they related to ransomware or terrorist financing? Um, In which case, that's bad. you got a high risk uh, score. And so just providing data really to enable people to understand who they're dealing with. So instead of saying, no way. You know, I don't want to deal with you at all because you're this big black area, black hole of information. Let's try to understand who we're dealing with and associate risk, and so that way you know how to appropriately engage.
1: You know, you don't want to be and how long bank. does it take? Oh, oh go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was going to
0: say, how long does it take to do that assessment uh, in in terms of give, associating a risk score? In my intro I referenced machine learning algorithms. That help understand fraud and opportunities for potential risk mitigation. Is this done in a matter of you know minutes, hours, days, weeks?
3: Right. So uh, companies like Etorox, which are Etorox is an exchange, and they use our API and within less than a second they get a score back. Um, so wow. that's the the power of using this because then they can immediately recognize or uh, deal with. You know, a situation where they may be um, wanting to, you know, not transact with this particular yeah. entity. Well, no, of what course, mm-hmm. go Keep ahead. Going, go ahead. Keep going. Oh yeah, so that's that's on the transaction side. But that's how we score uh, incoming transactions and incoming wallet addresses or you know accounts associated with these transactions. Right. Um, right. In the in the background right. leading up to that, right? I mean, the machine learning and all of the analytics that goes into it is not less than a second, I mean, that it, that is work that we're doing ongoing and that, sure. um, yeah, that's an effort. That- and
0: de- and depending on your risk score, there's different risk mitigation. You know, what, what happens when you're a 25% risk versus a 90% risk Do you have a recommendation engine that says these are the following steps you need to take to further vet the situation of the account? Or is just the black and white, you know, uh, off the chain, on the chain based on a certain threshold of risk?
3: Right. So that's where we um, have a level of risk associated to the score. which So it's a score from one to 10. Um, and so if you're higher on the risk scale, that means it's worse in terms of, OK, you need to report this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a 10, if it's above a seven, you know, above an eight, you got to report this to um the the regulators and that's just part of the compliance reporting that everyone has to do it's, it's called suspicious activity reporting yeah and um uh, and so that becomes a requirement now what we do is enable companies to say provide a um uh, customize their risk level so certain things are not as risky to them as others so for example um in certain jurisdictions having anonymity enhanced currencies is Something that they're more worried about than in other jurisdictions or gambling is a bigger deal, obviously, in other countries than in the U.S. Sure. Uh, uh, gambling is a big deal in the U.S. than in other countries. <laughs> um, you can adjust your um, risk level according to that jurisdiction and that organization.
1: You know, I was, I was saying earlier, like, you know, nobody wants to be the Riggs bank, you know, back in the day, it was the place where everything got money laundered from spy agencies to other areas. And so it sounds like you're, you've got a couple of things going on. You've got a scoring API that's basically checking in high-risk transactions, trying to figure out what, what people are doing. But then you're applying an AI and ML engine as well to do real-time and batch reporting as people need it. But it also sounds like you have a third part of the business that is really about helping people build better blockchain uh, technologies. Talk a little bit about that and, and how how you kind of help people review their blockchain architectures?
3: Yes. So what we do is, um, and this is natural just because in the business or in any new technology, any new innovative area, um, people are starting out. They want to know, okay, I've never done this before. Um, What are the best practices? How do we get started? Um, Who do we work with? How do we Start to think about this. How do we architect this? And um, yes, that's where we come in, and we have workshops that help them understand. Do you even need the blockchain? Because can I do it in a secure blockchain. database? Can we do it in a secure database? Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, for what you want to do, you could just do it in a yes in a database, right? You don't need to have the blockchain. It's overkill. So just starting off with that understanding of okay, what's what's really relevant for me, and do I even need to proceed? And then once we Um, go through that determination and it it does make sense to proceed then we talk okay for this use case it makes sense to use this type of blockchain versus that type of blockchain right so um, because we support so many different blockchains we understand all right bitcoin is good for that this permission blockchain is good for these use cases you know and so we have um, sort of a matrix of use this blockchain for this type of thing Um, And then from there, then we go on to, okay, how do you architect your particular use case and and solution? Um, But we focus on the part where, you know, trust comes in and they need to understand who they need to trust with or who they can't trust. Um, And that helps then, you know, move them into actually transacting.
1: What could go wrong? We got Aries and Grid and Indie and Fulp and Sawtooth and Burrow and Explorer and
3: Fabric. I mean, yeah, there's, there's
1: plenty of blockchains to go on. So
0: plenty of blockchains. Yeah. So this is my last question, uh Karen. Uh, so I'm attending a blockchain conference, and there's a hundred people in total that are in attendance.
1: All, six, percentage... feet apart. all six feet apart.
0: That's yeah, right. all six feet apart. Yes, yeah. we're in a large stadium, uh accommodating only a hundred what percentage of the 100 or how many are women that are in the conference and my follow up question is why did you start blockchain for women and tell us a little about that
3: yeah sure so um so it, i tend to think things from a structural perspective like if there is a structural issue then i want to address it and um so when i was at stanford i started a group called basis which was intended to help product oriented CEOs get off the ground because at that time I was giving advice. Hey, Karen, if you want to actually start a company, you need to get your MBA first. And I'm like, I don't want to get my MBA first. I'm too impatient. And, um, and so started basis to help other people like me. And so when I entered the blockchain space, I saw the same thing that a lot of other people saw, which is okay, great. This is a new area. I understand it's heavy in tech. Um, there's a lot of men here, but there aren't any women. And for this space to really, I think, reach maturity it has to get that other customer base involved right because one of the big issues with the blockchain is that the adoption is not as broad as mm-hmm. uh, you know is really needed right for the industry to completely take off and i think that part of the reason is because input hasn't been coming from a huge segment um, as well i think it's important for um, women to get started early in this space so that they don't get, you know, left behind here. Sure. And um, and yeah. it, it's been a great thing. So I, I've, been, I've started BlockChain by Women to really get women out in front and seen as leaders because oftentimes people just don't know that we're there. Um, so conferences would have a whole panel of speakers and it'd be all men. And I was like, hey, you could actually ask this person. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Question too, you know, she actually oh, yeah. has been doing work in this area, so. It was, it was she just has my work. patents. She's <laughs> a CEO. Diversifies yeah. yeah. a yeah. thing. Yeah. For yeah. graduate.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: just to help diverse and it's been really great. Um, it's been helpful, and so by no means is Blockchain by Women limited to only women. We're open sure. to men and women, and so all our events actually have a really good mix of both, um, and uh, we just want to ensure that you know we can move the industry forward with the broadest set of inputs and uh, we need all the help we can get so um getting more people on board
1: hey real That's quick true. i want to check in on what is the state of you know blockchain startups are we kind of at the bottom and people are coming back out uh so all the hype is out of the marketplace uh you know bitcoin values are down you know use cases and pocs are all over the place you know heading out to the zoo is like, all right. I mean, like what's going on, so.
3: Yeah, so I I definitely think um, this is a good time to either get in or stay in, right? I mean, if this is when um, the people who are really believers and really working on actual things um, are stepping back, retooling, um, but also making progress and, and selling because those that were just riding on hype, you know, they're gone. And and they've been gone for a while, um, yeah. yeah. So I think this is, yeah, this is the best time for blockchain technology to really be used, taken, and um, come to fruition in a lot of companies.
1: Well, I knew we hit the hype uh, this summer when I went to a wedding of two blockchain uh, people. It felt mm-hmm. like Burning Man met Davos with a blockchain <laughs> event at the same time. So yeah. it was quite, it was quite interesting. I'll leave it at that. We are here with Karen Shu, Chief Executive Officer at Blockchain Intel. You can follow her on Twitter at Karen H S U M A R. Thanks a lot. Don't be a stranger. We'll see you at the next one. Thank you Thank, Thank,
3: you. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. An honor.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. What an amazing uh, couple of CEOs and. So this is our cleanup hitter spot, for those of you familiar with baseball, where we're bringing a future Hall of Famer and expect, you know, at least a home run or a grand slam. And uh, so with that, <laughs> no pressure, our next guest uh, on Disrupt TV, a, a 404th unique guest on Disrupt TV is Joe McKendrick. Uh, Joe is an author, independent researcher and speaker exploring innovation uh, IT trends uh, and 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 markets who who uh, who ponders disruption, tech and otherwise with both optimistic and and skepticism. Uh, he's a great writer. Uh, Joe is a regular contributor to Forbes. His articles are terrific, as well as ZDNet uh, on on digital cloud data analytics topics, including work from home and leadership. And we'll talk about that in this segment. We've all lost count of uh, how many articles Joe has written. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I've been following Joe for years, and he's shaped my thinking quite a bit. Uh, He's a co-author of SOA Manifesto, which outlined the value and guiding principle of service orientation in business and IT. He's a wonderful follow, a must follow on Twitter at J-O-E-M-C-K-E-N-D-R-I-C-K. Welcome, Joe, to Disrupt TV.
4: Thanks, Vala, and thanks, Ray. Uh, it's, it's a real honor to be here, and uh, I hope I can live up to that buildup uh, that you just gave me. <laughs> no, you no, absolutely, I'm telling I'm you, Joe, there.
0: You, you, you produce incredible amount of content. You're incredibly accessible and social. I see you engaging with so many business leaders, influencers. I often think you're influencing influencers, and so you know, it's an honor to have you on the show.
4: Well, I'll well, tell my wife that that I'm an influencer. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I you still even... will have to take the
4: trash out like Ray and I. So
1: let's. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: So
1: <laughs> You know, but hey, look, the honor really is ours. And, you know, some of the articles you write, some of the thoughts that you've put to paper really are super insightful. And, and there's one I like, and it's really about your piece on innovation and serendipity lost. And I really wanna go deeper into this because it changes the way we think about the, the problem, the way we frame things. And if you could talk a little bit about that and what really you know got inspired you to write about this.
4: Well, Ray, I've actually written about this uh, before in the past Uh, as the digital revolution uh, really got underway. You know, I'm dating myself here, but going back to the 1990s, even I've kind of written on this topic off and on. You know, just curious how, you know, typically the workplace has been people working together, people bumping into each other in hallways. Uh, You know, when you have innovation, you have situations where, you know, a couple of people might be running into each other in the lunchroom and someone's from the engineering department and they say to the other person, Hey, uh, you know, we can't get this one part to do our testing because, uh, there's some kind of bottleneck or there, um, there's some kind of supply issue with the supplier. And the other person I talked to says, uh, you know, my, my wife works at that company and, uh, you know, she knows so-and-so and we can, we can, uh, get that, uh, we can get that done for you. You know, just, just give me the word, you know, and that's how a lot of, uh, that's how a lot of this happens. A lot of this, the serendipity. This, uh, that's a lot. How a lot of innovation happens. And the question is, what what gets lost and what gets gained when we go to online uh, engagement, such as we've all been pushed into, you know, involuntarily, basically over the past mm-hmm. few weeks. What, what are we losing in terms of not being able to see each other and to, to physically engage with each other in workplaces? And maybe we're gaining something too because now we're you know, now we're dealing with people, we're interacting with people from all across the globe. You know, I'm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Ray, you're in Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> and Bala, you're in beautiful Boston. Uh, you know, uh, we, we wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to, ever, to engage with each other, uh, to work uh, side by side, and, and here we are. Um, so, is there something gained? Is there something lost when we? Uh, Lose this informal day to day type of interaction. Uh, you know that's what I'm curious about. And uh, you know my article uh, you mentioned Forbes. I I went out to a lot of people and said, you know what, you know how do you feel about this? You know what's going on with this this new work at home ethic that uh, we we all have been forced <laughs> into. Uh, uh, what, what are the implications? And I got you know if you read the article, it's very much a mixed bag of reactions. Some people say, well, there's a lot to be lost. Even a Someone from a software company uh, you know doing field service work they they, they provide for a remote work told me basically um, you know we we treasure the ability for our employees here at headquarters to to interact and to uh, have this serendipity to uh, to get to know each other on a very intimate level, and that's lost, and we're kind of missing that so its it's, it's been interesting what what's been happening out there and that's the big question right. you know,
3: right.
4: what are we gaining no. what are we losing?
0: Yeah, no, it's in, in, you know, you started the article talking about innovation at 3M and how the the gentleman who invented post-it notes had that spark because he was introduced to a colleague who was working on an adhesive. And so, you know, those, those random collisions, those hallway conversations can lead to, you know, incredible, incredible innovation. And with our first guest, when we were talking about managing a call center, I managed a call center for 10 years. And I used to have experts roaming the floors, listening to conversations so that they can inject their domain expertise to help accelerate the path to resolution while you know the frontline more junior staff were potentially struggling with how to get to uh, a, a, a problem solved so those those uh, natural engagements and flow of conversations and knowledge sharing is is really lost in this you know uh, digital only point to point uh, uh, solutions that may be, in, in for, as an example of a, of a call center. Another thing that you, you wrote about was how COVID-19 and the pandemic has opened our minds to technology. You know, we talked about blockchain in the previous segment. We talked about the new, uh, you know, imperative for CIOs. Can you talk a little bit about what has been the impact of the pandemic uh, in terms of our view of technology? Now, naturally, three of us are, you know, across the world. <laughs> Connected, so we're more comfortable with video conferencing for sure now versus eight weeks ago. But other examples you can share with us?
4: Okay, and and just uh, what you said a little bit earlier, uh, Vala, um You talked you talked about management by walking around, and Tom Peters. You spoke with Tom Peters just earlier. Yes,
0: right? yes,
4: Tom Peters has really been a big proponent of management MBWA management by walking around. Right. Um, I believe he borrowed that, or he he that was that thought first was. Came out with HP um, back in the 1950s, I think. Uh, sure. I'm not sure if it was uh, Hewlett or Packard that <laughs> actually coined that phrase. But you know, Tom Peters picked up with it and ran with it, and and he's written books about it. And he talks about MBWA as as the the key, the essence to really good management. Uh, just simply, the CEO, the VPs, the people in charge, the managers, just simply getting up. And, you know, some people call it management by wandering around, just simply getting up and walking around, putting, keeping their ear to the ground, you know, getting an idea of what employees are facing every day, what ideas they may have. Uh, I've had the opportunity to, to work with uh, some people that, that actually operate that way. Uh, um, sure. I, I, I'll give you a story. Uh, I, I, I did a lot of work with uh, Olson Corporation, which was the leading temp services uh, firm back in the day, now acquired by ADECO. Uh, Bill Olson was a very personable kind of leader. He built the company. He basically built the temp help industry. Wow. Um, and I was working with him. Just as a, an example, uh, I was I was I was in the office there walk, talking with him, and he, he always made it a point to talk with me. And uh, um, and he was this way with everybody. You know, he was a real a good listener.
3: Awesome. And
4: his CFO uh, came to the door. He needed to talk to Bill about something. Bill said, "I can't talk to you right now. I'm talking with Joe McKendrick." It's <laughs> like. Yeah, well me, you know. <laughs> I love that. I love that.
1: No, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, he
4: really knew how to make people feel important. And 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 it's it's it wasn't, you know, he was a great guy, a nice guy, but it wasn't just because he was a nice guy. It's it's it was his way of really understanding what was happening in the company, what the bottlenecks were, what the issues were. And the question is, and and bring it around full circle to what <laughs> to today's situation. How can a, a good manager, how could an executive perform or, or, or go through MD, MBWA virtually? You know, they can't walk from house to house to employees' houses to try to figure out or listen to what's going on. It has to be done virtually. And that's the key. Uh, you know, how do you do this virtually? And that's the question. And I really I don't have the answers as of yet. I, I You know, this is something I'm still exploring, but it, it, it's something that that has to be learned, it's something that has to be developed. Um, the ability to listen, the ability to engage with your employees, uh, You know, perhaps formats such as this, uh, Zoom type of meetings are a way to do that. Um, and uh, a little aside here, uh, Tipco, you know, our friends at Tipco had a, a business meeting uh, a couple of days ago, and one of them tipped off Conan O'Brien. Uh, it, it's worth checking out, it, it, you could probably catch it on YouTube. Conan O'Brien <laughs> Zoom bombed this Tipco meeting, <laughs> <laughs> and he gets on there and he starts admonishing everybody okay uh tipco i'm not happy with their sales so far and i'm not happy with the way the product is our products are being developed uh let's talk about this <laughs>
0: that's awesome that's awesome uh I, I wonder if people recognize who he was Wondering, is this like a security <laughs> uh, breach or this is? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like but it's hard, to, it's hard to miss Conan O'Brien. He's uh,
1: it, it, he, he he's was going on a channel well. strategy for a long time, so that's pretty wild, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you have him doing that, and the next thing, David Packard shows up and uh, talking about you know manager from walking around.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You know, the, the ghost of David Packard is here. So,
1: so but, but, yeah, man, yeah,
4: yeah, Conan was walking MBWA. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: No, <laughs> so, no, one of the things you always come back to time to time and and that's really where I first caught um, all your writing and all your work was really around careers and what people should know in keeping their careers current. And you came back to this topic again and uh talk a little bit what's different, right? Because we go through these waves. I mean every crash, every boom, every crash, right? We come through some kind of thinking and some self reflection and we're suddenly woke and you know all these other things.
4: Uh talk about it. Okay. Um well um I think you know they say well, more than they say, the economy uh, is a wreck right now, okay? And who knows how, what direction, whether it's going to be a V-shaped uh, recovery. Hopefully, it'll be a V-shaped recovery. You know, we, we drop in real fast and we bounce up real fast. But the previous recession uh, is a great example of the 2009 financial crash. Uh, the, the, the recession at that time was different for people because they actually had the tools to help themselves climb out of it, to climb out of their situations, I called it at the time, I called it the lift strategy. We had LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We had the social media. And, and in previous recessions, you got laid off from a company, and that's it. You're cut off from everybody. You might have a couple of friends still the, on the workforce there, but you don't know what's going on with that company. Um, you're out on your own collecting unemployment. You were what happened in 2000? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, you're a non-person. <laughs> what happened in 2009, though, everybody was networked in. You had these, you know, LinkedIn, I'll, I'll use LinkedIn as an example. Everybody, many people, I should say, were on these networks. Their CEO might still be on that network. Sure. They may have been laid off or they may have been uh, in a situation, uh, an unfavorable situation, but they had this network of people they could tap into to find out what's going on. And it's more so nowadays. You know, you have, what again, what I call Lyft, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and, and much more to, to remain connected. With the rest of the world, and I think that's a great tool that people should leverage more. Uh, you guys, you guys are the masters of Twitter. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> hands down. <laughs> that way. <laughs> oh, shoot, that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys are are, are uh, brands. Uh, you guys are forces of nature on Twitter, and and you built personal brands on Twitter. And I would encourage everybody to use social networks that way. You know, Twitter got kind of a bad name in recent years. You know, uh, you know, certain politicians uh, make too much <laughs> use of Twitter and so forth. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a great way to not only build your brand to get known, but also to kind of tap into the hive mind. You know, what are people across the industry thinking? You know, what are the hot technologies? You know, uh Blockchain, for example, Karen was talking about blockchain. What's going on with blockchain? You could tap into that hive mind community and understand what the trends are, what's important, uh, what developments are taking place. And it, it's a great professional tool. And people need to make more use of it. People can make more use of it to, to build these personal brands. And also, um, I'm involved with uh, several user groups, the independent Oracle user group, IOUG, PaaS, the, uh, the SQL Server user group share that's yep, that's right, out there right. that's a very strong group that uh, it, it represents IBM mainframe IBM big systems users still a very strong group and the key is you know, along with the electronic network get involved with these networks get involved with these user groups um, get to know people uh, in these groups and what's going on what you know th- there's no better way to really move yourself along in this era and this is timeless advice you know this is there's nothing new about this advice uh, in fact my, my, in the early stages of my career, I was the, uh, the manager of a, of a professional society for managers, and uh, we had conferences and newsletters, and our strength was in our local chapters. We had local chapters across the U.S. and Canada, even some European locations. That's where people got together. That's where people advanced their careers or, or learned about opportunities And I think that's the way to go. And another point I'll make when we talk about advancing, again, this is timeless advice. There's nothing really new about this, but everybody should have the opportunity to to be an entrepreneur at some point in their career. Everybody should experience it, at least try it out. Um, Over the years, through the course of my career, I've spoken to a lot of folks, a lot of of people who have started software companies. Uh, We had Karen on who who started her own company. She came from a data background. Um, That's a great example of, of taking your skills and putting it out there to the world and 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 leveraging what you know to productize it and to try it out in the marketplace and and everybody should try that everybody should do that i've i've kind of been an entrepreneur you know i'm independent consultant and i've been doing it for years and you know you have to have a bit of a strong stomach <laughs> oh yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is terrific advice joe i mean you're you're a living example i mean you know from writing to being active on social to speaking to you know being participating in podcasts you know right now it's just when you learn something teach uh and you know whether it's a blog or or, or a, a user a group on linkedin or or, or or twitter uh you know ray and i we've, you know, four years of, of doing this show. And it's my favorite day of the week because we're students. Uh, we stay teachable, Ray and I, because we get experts like yourself to come on the show and teach us. Um, and um, it's, it's just an extraordinary experience. And by the way, I've met both of you on Twitter. So the yeah. power of networking with a purpose Absolutely. is that you can have long-lasting relationships and friendships and folks that are your mentors and and uh, you know, so it's, it's 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 fantastic advice, Joe. really, really. And it's so relevant and it has nothing to do with the pandemic. Although times like this, if you've invested enough in in teaching others and, and learning and staying teachable yourself, when there is a crisis, you have an opportunity to lean into your network for support, for ideas, for potential career opportunities. so, it's, it's it, it, the investment is worth, uh, you know, every amount of time and energy that you put into it. Uh, so I really appreciate the feedback.
4: And, and networking is such a powerful tool. It's such a powerful tool. Be it in person. Hopefully there'll be more of that uh, in the coming months. And also electronic. It's, it's two, two levels of a powerful tool. And the other piece is that. Well, we look
0: forward to seeing you in person so we can break bread at some point. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Same here. And, and really actually engineering for center, serendipity or actually planning for serendipity. It's it's one of the things that you can't really do digitally, but at least in live events, you know that's the thing you do miss the most: passing through the hallways, bumping into something you yeah. hadn't seen in a while. And I hope that might be you at the next event. So we're here with Joe McKendrick, author and independent researcher. You can follow him on Twitter at J O E M C K E N D R I C K. Thank you so much for closing out our show today.
4: Thank you, thank Joe, you, Ray. thank Give you very much. Uh, grand oh, slam,
1: grand slam, <laughs>
0: Joe. <Grant laughs> slam. I did play literally. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell he was an athlete. I could tell. Uh broad shoulders and that, you know, that, that impressive persona. It's all the stance. Uh, stance.
1: It's it's yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, I would have guessed he was a basketball player. Joe Joe reminds me of like uh, you know uh Bird and Mikhail, you know, tall guy, you know, inside the post. Uh, <laughs> but uh you, what about another I mean, yeah, another amazing show. We have two CEOs, obviously an incredible thought leader. Uh, next week, episode 188, we have Jason Corman, CEO of Gapping Void. We have Rana L kalobi Calo- PhD, CEO, and co-founder at Effectiva, and author of Girl Decoded. Love that. And then, of course, we have the former CIO of the FCC and incredible thought leader, Dr. David Bray, He's now the director of Geotech Center and Geotech Commission at the Atlantic Council. One of the biggest brains that you and I know is Dr. David Bray. So we have two PhDs uh, and uh, two CEOs <laughs> on episode on 188. <laughs> Why are we <laughs> yeah. on the
1: show? <laughs> we're
0: and and we're approaching uh, 600 interviews uh, in the next uh, month or so. So it's uh, Ray. It's uh, it's uh, final thoughts on. Uh, on episode 187 and what we can look forward to uh, next week.
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot going on. This is an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to take some time uh, to you know, reconnect still. I, I'm still getting phone calls from people I haven't heard from in like two, three years. You know, they were heads down, they were working on something. Now they got finally got some time to catch up or talk or, or just to share things. And it's hard to believe how much time passes by. I mean, we yeah. were doing the pre-show and everybody was like, wow, I mean, the week's over. I mean, this is the only reason, I know it's Friday. So, yeah, Yeah, no. but what about you? What are you seeing as well, so?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, the days are blurring. Uh, you know, there's no difference in terms, you know, I, I'm writing articles on Saturday, Sunday, so to me there's no difference than a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, I have had more video conversations with my managers and my colleagues Uh, we have virtual coffee meetings on different days where we literally connect with no agenda, just to, you know, what are you working on? How can I help? Interesting stories. So, and we call them virtual coffee meetings. Um, And So I have those throughout the week. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to cope and and we're all hopeful that uh, we'll get back to what will be a new norm. I just don't see certainly calendar 2020 that uh, you know, uh, even a return back to office uh, will will have you know the same look and feel as 2019, and uh, so there'll be an adjustment period, and we'll see. You know, hopefully, uh, hopefully the UV light and sunlight will get us. <laughs> in a more secure state.
1: In well, no, just, just don't inject yourself with anything. But welcome to the yeah. world's largest global reality TV show. Um, yeah. And it's not Disrupt TV. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, but hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Come here every Friday at 11 a.m., 2 p.m. Eastern. Catch all the replays on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube Live, and soon one day, LinkedIn Live. So, hey, thanks a lot, everybody. Have an awesome weekend. Mm-hmm.